uh, I once went to a large fundraising banquet where uh, I had agreed to give the opening prayer. You know, the person that comes up and everyone's waiting for the food, and then there's that guy. Um, well, you can imagine my surprise when I sat down at the table. It was towards the front because I was, you know, doing the prayer. And I opened the program, and there I was listed as giving the keynote address. That was a startling moment. What would you do? Well, one of those moments where you look around, what, what do I have? You look within, is there, is there anything there? Is there anything that's just bubbled up? What have I got? I've got a napkin. Brooke was there. Here's a pen. Uh, and I had 10 minutes. Well, I, I realized at that moment that I really don't have a lot to go on. There's not a lot in here. Um, when I prepare a public talk or a sermon, I take many days, at least a week, after reading of mulling over, reflecting, meditating on the scripture passage, before I begin to write anything. I am a, I'm a slow thinker. I'm a slow processor. If you want to debate with me, you'll crush me. <laughs> so what could I do? I spoke to the Lord. And as I was speaking, a thought formed itself, which I take to be from him. No, you don't have very much to go on. <laughs> go with that. Like, go with that. That's it. Well, it had to be something like that, on-the-spot panic that the 12 disciples felt when they were confronted with an impossible situation. We're in John chapter 6. In the beginning of John 6, John writes that sometime after Jesus' visit down to Jerusalem where uh, he had healed the man at the pool of Bethesda, John chapter 5, and then that had been followed by this conversation in the temple with uh, Jewish leaders. And he had taught there, which we looked at last week, on his authority, where his authority comes from, why his authority is legitimate. And Jesus and his followers, sometime after that, were back in Galilee. And a big crowd, 5,000 men plus an unknown number of women and children, had gathered to hear his teaching. And they had gathered to, to see uh, his miraculous healings that he was doing. That, that 5,000, that may be a way, I think it is likely a way of saying 5,000 families were represented. So 5,000 families, that's a very big crowd. Jesus and the disciples have sat down on the mountainside and they're, they're looking down. And Jesus takes note of the crowd. And then he says to Philip, verse 5, where are we to buy bread so these people may eat? Philip, what are you going to do about this? And you've got five minutes to figure it out. You can imagine Philip's face contorting as he's working through his mind flying. Wait, 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 what? You, were we supposed to be prepared for this? Were we supposed to be storing bread up? Is this... He's, he's thinking, have we fed a crowd before? Have I missed... Have we done this? Uh, or 
is this how this kingdom thing's going now? We are going to be like bread distributors? Well, Philip might well have been wondering, why are you asking me? There's, there's 11 other guys. Why? I wonder if Philip might have been an administrative type, you know, a logistics guy. Because then he, he could be counted on to underscore the impossibility of this task. So if I, wanted, if I wanted someone to tell me something was impossible, I would talk to Jay, right? Uh, he's going to shoot straight, and he's going to tell me, nope, this is an impossible scenario. And Philip does not disappoint. 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. In today's economy, that's about $24,000. $24,000, $25,000 would not be enough for each of them to get a little. That is a big crowd. And I think that is why he asked Philip, shoot straight, this is impossible. Let's just say so we all know this is impossible. So well, then we have Andrew. Andrew pops in. We've taken stock. We've opened up the bags. We've looked around, and there is not much to go on. There is a boy here, he says, who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what is that? In response to this, Jesus says, have them sit down. We can work with this. Have them sit down. Now notice up in verse 6, John gives us an insight. This whole situation, Jesus orchestrated. He knew. He knew what was going to happen here. This he said to Philip to prove or test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Before he even asked the question, Jesus knows what he's doing, what, what is going to happen. Unfortunately, the word test, when we, when we hear the word test or we read the word test, it's laden with bad connotations from school days, right? Your, your, your pulse might even quicken when you hear the word test. We're going to have a test at the end of this. That, that's, I prefer some of the older translations' use of the word prove. Jesus did this to prove him. That is, he set up a situation in which they will see for themselves what kind of faith they have. What's being tested is whether they've received the message that we talked about last week. So remember that, how uh, after that healing of the ungrateful invalid, 38 years, he's healed. He doesn't say thank you. He tattles on Jesus. Uh, right after that, Jesus spoke at length about his authority how his authority derived from oneness with the Father. Oneness of will, oneness of purpose, oneness of knowledge. And that this authority was evident to all by what he was doing and what he was saying. There were these witnesses. That authority is evident, just, it is, it is obvious, as well as in the scriptures that he was fulfilling. If you read the Old Testament, if you read the writings of Moses, you will see me fulfilling those, Jesus was saying. So now Jesus has brought his little community away from Jerusalem, 
here in the wilderness, they're on the mountainside, to bring out what they have and what they haven't come to see in him. This is a continuous narrative. What is it that you have understood about Jesus? About me, he's saying to them. This he did to prove them. This he did to test. How have they understood who he is? But it's not for him. He already knows. It's for them. I try to tell kids that's what tests are for. It's it's not for your teachers. Tests are for you. In his gospel telling, John, in the narrative, John is he's approximating. He's trying to get for his readers and listeners, for us and for Christians through the centuries, what the disciples experienced that day. Our reading habits usually cut us off from this message because we read chapter, we'll read a chapter or we'll read one little passage. But if we read the whole thing, if we read as a sweep of the narrative, then we'll get it better. John has just related Jesus talking about his authority. And then John jumps over many days. We don't know how many days we're in between to bring us to this incident. So it's supposed to be what he has just said about his authority is supposed to be echoing in our minds. As this this part of the story comes in, this, this narrative comes into play. If you believed Moses, you would believe me. That's supposed to be echoing. If you believed Moses, you would believe me. So, readers and listeners of the scriptures down through the centuries are receiving the same kind of evaluation. How how can I say this another way? We are supposed to, as readers, have an experience of reading that tries to approximate what the disciples were experiencing. Namely, do you believe him? Do you trust? How much do you trust Jesus? Do you believe that he has the authority that he just claimed to have? So as this episode happens, that's stirring in us. Well, you know what happened. Jesus took the loaves that the boy had and the fish. He blessed them and he distributed them to the disciples. And the disciples then took them to those who were sitting along with the fish as much as they wanted. As much as they wanted. And then when everyone had eaten as much as they wanted, he said, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered up the bits of broken bread and fish and they filled up 12 baskets. Now, unmistakably to anyone there, this was a prophetic sign that only God could do. Only God could pull this off. Even if even if half of them hadn't noticed where the bread came from in the beginning, they hadn't noticed how it just began to multiply, there's no way that Jesus and 12 peasants could have supplied food for 5,000 more. That's obvious to everyone. You didn't have to have a front row seat to realize God is doing something right now. And they say so. This is indeed the prophet who's to come into the world. This is the one. So the crowds clearly see the sign. 
They actually ate the sign. Here's the sign of the authority of God being exercised, and I ate it. If they thought they imagined it, maybe we didn't, maybe somehow this was some sort of trick. Their bodies would tell them, no, wait a minute, you are full. An hour ago, you were hungry and had no hope of getting bread, and you are now full. This, the power of this man is as real as the bread in my stomach. This has to be the prophet that God promised to Moses. God had told Moses, I'll raise up one like you from among this people who will be the ruler of Israel. And Jesus knows what they're thinking. He knows that as they begin to talk among themselves in this crowd, the energy of the crowd begins to increase. Jesus knows He says he perceives they were ready to come and publicly proclaim him as king, so he slips away. Having a rebellion against Rome and Roman authority, breaking out in Galilee at this moment, that was not the aim of the exercise. So the larger, most significant aim, having to do with the shaping of a community of followers, We'll talk about that next week as the passage continues. But the shorter term, the more immediate aim had to do with the 12. The the 12 here. Were they trusting him? Were they getting him? When he talked about his authority, how far did they really believe that it went? And again, he's not testing them because he doesn't know the answer. He knows how far they've trusted him and how far they haven't. The test is for them. Tests are for us so that these disciples can know consciously. It can come to their minds. They can have an epiphany about who this is that they're following and whether or not they trust in him. Most of the time, and I think you'll verify this, we really don't know the answer to that question. So I would guess that most Christians, even if you're a very new Christian, you've thought at some point, how how would I be under persecution? How would I do? If I were put to the test, if, if the gun is at my head, would I deny Jesus? You've wondered that, right? It just comes to our minds at some point. We wonder about the quality of our faith. We wonder about the strength of it. It's how legitimate it is, how real. How much do we know Jesus? And does that knowledge of Jesus, will it carry us in difficulty? How much do we trust him with our lives? How much do we trust him with the lives of others? How much do we trust Jesus with the lives of our spouses? How much do we trust Jesus with the lives of our children or our siblings? And the fact is, we really can't know until it's tested. Or like the older translations have it, until it's proven. That that is, put to the proof. Put through something that will reveal the quality of what is there. 
The Lord knows what's in us. He knows right now what's in us. He knows the weaknesses. He knows the areas of strength, relatively. He knows what parts of us we've brought into the light, and he knows what parts we keep hidden in the darkness, what parts we're terrified to be exposed. He knows all that. There's no mystery with him. So trials and tests that we experience are not for him. He, he doesn't need to learn anything about us. He knows already you. He knows every thought and he knows what you, as you go all the way down, all that stuff that's in there. Do you think you can hide that from the God who sees? We are silly because we do think so. We are silly. Trials and tests are for us. And the good that comes from them is for us. We are given the gift, that rare gift of truth shining on us. Truth shining in on what we really believe so that we can know it. That's a great gift. Really, that's a great gift. We fear it. But it's great. But it's a preliminary gift. Even that is preliminary. So to realize that you have little faith, just tiny little faith, to realize you have very few resources. When you look about you, I got nothing. I've got nothing. To realize that you are lost and weak is a great gift. It's even a necessary gift to be saved. To be saved from condemnation. To be saved from judgment. We have to know that, that I cannot save myself. To be saved from any present trouble, we have to have that knowledge. We have to, we have to receive that gift. But it is a preliminary gift to receiving God himself. The great gift. Because we can't receive him if we're convinced we're fine. This is basic Christianity. If we're arguing to ourselves that we have a handle on everything, I need nothing. Or if we stubbornly claim that we are, we're good and right just as we are with all of our sin and darkness, we can't receive God. Because he is a gift who must be received by surrender and submission. He's the ruler. The authority of God doesn't stand beside any other authority. He's the only one. And that includes our own sense of authority. So in this moment by the sea with the crowds hemming in, and nothing to eat, Jesus let the disciples feel their poverty. For just, it didn't last long, right? Just a moment. Feel your poverty. Feel it. Feel your inability. Your incapacity. They have nothing, and they can do nothing about this situation. And Jesus teaches them that when they accept that fact... 
when they acknowledge it, thank you, Philip, he is there to give. No sooner do they just lay out the facts than he moves to give. So later on, you know, Jesus, he's going to explain that he's the bread from heaven. That this is next week. He's the bread who gives life to the world. So as he does this sign with the bread and the fish, it's a sign that does some pointing. It points back to his claims of authority. Who can do this? The one who has authority. And it points forward to his words about how he gives life. So just as they receive the bread, just as they eat it, Offering nothing, there's not a person who sat there that, that gave money for this bread that could say, I, me, I deserve the bread. Bring it over here. No one can say that. They all ate. They ate it freely. They ate abundantly. Like that, they must receive Jesus. Like bread gives life to the body. His words and his presence give life to the soul. Well, finally, let's, let's uh, consider these 12. They get one more lesson from this experience. They handed out the bread. After admitting that they had nothing, Jesus made bread and fish. And then he put it into their hands. And they passed it out to hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds. They were instrumental in people eating, being satisfied. And you could imagine, this was a moment of joy and wonder. If you were sitting there that day, you're watching this amazing thing happen. And so they, no, there's no sad faces here. Look at this bread as it's coming. And the disciples get, they're giving joy. You can bet there's laughter. Look at this, yes. It's a moment of wonder. And they got to hand it out. What a privilege. There is no shame. Do you think they felt shame or embarrassment that I couldn't make the bread? I couldn't break the fish and then find multiple fish? They don't have an inkling of wounded pride here because they weren't the prophet themselves. The glory belongs to Jesus and there is tremendous pleasure just taking part. Joy and pleasure. There's no envy. We have this privilege too. Whatever you know of God, whatever you know, whatever understanding and friendship you have with him, he's a gift. He's given it. It's like bread put into your hands from God. Every little bit of knowledge, no matter how small your knowledge of God, that's a gift. Whatever truth he was given. And God gives himself to us for our joy. He gives himself to us for our blessing. And he gives that we might give to others. It's just at this point 
that then we become highly religious. It's at this point we pivot and we shoulder a burden that belongs to God himself. Oh, I've got some knowledge. Now I've got to share it. Look at this. All the disciples had to do was hand it out. Jesus decided what he put into Peter's hands. He decided what he put into Andrew's hands, Bartholomew's hands. He decides. All they had to do was take what was in their hands and pass it out. They weren't required to put some nice seasoning on the fish. All right, guys, you need to make this fish palatable. They were not required to put butter on the bread. All right, now this is barley loaves. So You've got to make this taste better. Just hand out what you've been given. It's God who multiplies. It's God who makes it what it is. The truth has its own power. You cannot add to the power of the truth. Get rid of that. You can't. In fact, by trying to add to it, you diminish it. Every bit we try to uh, massage the truth, try to make it more palatable, we diminish it. We obscure it. So rather than creating a burden, this word is meant to give us freedom. Freedom. The Lord orchestrates situations, and the Lord is the giver of life. We just share. We just share what little we know. And that is the simple task of the church. It has always been the simple task of the church is to know him, as he will reveal himself, to know him, and to make him known. Know him and make him known. What we know comes from him. And the results of what we share belong to him. So we trust him. We trust his power. We trust his authority. Remember where I started? I was sitting there as this banquet was beginning, realizing I have got nothing. And the Lord seemed to nudge, go with that. That's true. So I spoke about Jesus feeding the 5,000 uh, and the joyful freedom of being a servant. Joyful freedom. Just being a bread deliverer. Just, a, just handing it out. And I want to say that to you too. That none of us have much. In the, in the scheme of things. But what we have has been given. There's no place for pride in this. Whatever we have has been given. So go with that. I don't have much. But go with that. Share what love and grace you have. Whatever grace you have, whatever goodness about God that you have seen, let that be known. And then see, what you will see is that when your hands are emptied, when you've passed it, it's multiplied. It's, it's there again. Grace given means grace restored, grace renewed. And suddenly you're full again. 
Lord, we do thank you for every little bit about you that you've been gracious to reveal. Thank you that uh, you've taught us and shown us that you're a redeeming God. That when we acknowledge the truth of our poverty, you're ready to give, ready to fill. So I pray that you would make us honest people. You know our tendency to dishonesty with you. Help us. Give us the grace of acknowledging to you the truth about ourselves, of our need for you, of our tendency to destruction. Lord, have mercy on us, we pray. In Jesus' name.